Hey everyone, just a quick reminder about the upcoming Dead of Winter event in Alton at Mineral Springs on Saturday, February 10th. The event is free to attend, and Troy and I will be doing a live episode of the podcast with a little help from some awesome special guests. Don't forget to leave us a review on iTunes with the hashtag Dead of Winter for a chance to win some free stuff. For more info, you can go to AmericanHauntingsInc.com slash winter. And now, on to the ghosts. St. Louis is considered today to be one of the outstanding medical training centers in the United States. Over the years, dozens of medical schools have flourished in the city along with many excellent hospitals. But not since Dr. Joseph McDowell's college was closed just before the Civil War has there been another school quite like his. It was a place about which dozens of strange stories were told. The lurid tales included incidents of grave robbery, bizarre experiments, morbid curiosities, preservation of corpses, and even ghosts. And unfortunately, most of the eerie stories turned out to be true. Welcome to the latest episode of American Hauntings, the podcast dedicated to the history, hauntings, legends, and lore of America's past. Hosted by Cody Beck and Troy Taylor, our second season explores the history, mystery, and hauntings of St. Louis, Missouri, the most haunted city along the Mississippi River. Medicine in the first decades of the 19th century was much different than we know it today. Most men who were considered doctors were healers who practiced a kind of herbal medicine or performed crude surgeries in barber shops. Little education was needed to call yourself a doctor until advances in both medicine and anatomy came along in the 1830s and 1840s. But at the same time, doctors began to lose much of the respect they had garnered in years past as healers of the sick. The profession began to be looked at with fear and disgust, largely because of the methods by which the medical advances were being made, by dissection of the dead. Cadavers became essential for the new medical schools because students needed a body on which to practice their skills and by which to learn the essentials of anatomy. In other words, if you're going to start cutting on someone, you may want to know where all the various parts are located. Since very few people were willing to donate their bodies to medical schools when they died, doctors and medical students had no choice but to find a way to get bodies themselves. Grave robbing soon became a common practice, despite the laws that were passed to prevent it. As more medical colleges appeared, the need for fresh cadavers grew. However, most states had laws that restricted doctors from claiming the dead for dissection. The only exception were the bodies of criminals who were sentenced to death. As you might imagine, the demand for corpses far outweighed the number of dead criminals. 
In Missouri, laws were passed that criminalized both the opening of graves and the removing of corpses for the purpose of sale or dissection. The laws barely slowed things down, though, and fresh bodies frequently vanished from their graves. This led to public outrage, newspaper editorials, and sometimes even angry mobs who threatened to burn down the medical schools accused of such practices. It was under these less than enlightened conditions that the McDowell Medical School was founded in 1840 as the medical department of Kemper College in St. Louis. The head of the medical school was Dr. Joseph McDowell and it became the first to be successfully established west of the Mississippi. McDowell School remained connected with Kemper College until 1847 when financial problems forced Kemper to drop the program. At that point, McDowell struck out on his own and constructed a building to house the school at 9th and Gracio Streets. It became one of the most notorious buildings in the city for a variety of reasons. But the notoriety of the school would be greatly overshadowed by the notoriety of its founder. Joseph Nash McDowell was born on April 1, 1805 in Lexington, Kentucky. He came from a long line of military men and politicians, but from a young age, McDowell was fascinated by medicine. His uncle, Dr. Ephraim McDowell of Danville, Kentucky, had made history by removing a massive tumor from a woman, all without the aid of anesthesia. Even after draining it of what he called noxious fluids, it still weighed 22 pounds. You could see why it made the record books. By the way, she survived and lived another 32 years. Ephraim became one of the first doctors to study medicine overseas, but never obtained a license. Well, because they didn't really exist in the United States at the time. After he returned home to Kentucky, he continued his medical practice and began experiments using corpses that had been procured from morgues and cemeteries so that he could dissect them in the basement of his home. Many of the bodies that he used were obtained by his nephew, Joseph, who planned to join his famous uncle in his practice. Not only did his time with his uncle start Joseph's future career of stealing corpses, it also began his lifelong passion for holding grudges. While living with his uncle, McDowell fell in love with one of Ephraim's daughters. The relationship was doomed to fail, not because they were first cousins, but because the girl did not return his feelings. Joseph appealed to his uncle to convince her to marry him, but Ephraim refused. He believed Mary should choose her own husband. Joseph stormed off and never returned. He never spoke to Ephraim again and years later even tried to discredit him. He held a grudge, the first of many grudges against various people for the rest of his life. Although Joseph's feelings toward his uncle had changed, he was still devoted to medicine. He secured a place for himself as a student at Transylvania University in Lexington, Kentucky and continued his studies under the leadership of Dr. Daniel Drake, who had received the first medical diploma west of the Allegheny Mountains. He was brilliant, but also troubled. He had once been challenged to a duel and refused to accept, so a friend took his place. When the friend was seriously wounded, Drake left the school where he was a professor. He helped start one of the first teaching schools for doctors in Cincinnati, but after a disagreement with several other doctors, was forced off the board. McDowell became devoted to Dr. Drake. He even named his first son after him and married Drake's sister, Amanda. McDowell would even emulate some of his mentor's less attractive character traits. There were likely good reasons as to why Drake was challenged to a duel or was kicked out of the medical college that he helped to start. He refused to recover from his embarrassment and his humiliation drove him to try and put his old school out of business. He founded a competing medical college in the same town and then did everything he could to discredit the other one. 
McDowell joined his mentor in battle, questioning the reputation of the opposing college during profanity-ridden rants on street corners, making vicious verbal attacks on the school's professors, and building a reputation as something of a dangerous and very unstable enemy. Oddly enough, though, Dr. Drake actually rejoined the faculty of his old school in 1852, but died just a few days after receiving his appointment. By that time, though, Joseph McDowell was already on his way to becoming a St. Louis legend. After graduating from medical school in 1827, McDowell practiced medicine and worked with Daniel Drake until he came west to St. Louis and discovered a thriving medical community. He joined the faculty of Kemper College and with two years had organized the medical department. His reputation as a talented surgeon quickly spread along with tales of his wild hair, passion for medicine, and his eccentric behavior. He was loud, opinionated, and overwhelming, but his enthusiasm for medicine inspired great loyalty in his students. After a series of financial problems for the school, McDowell took over the medical college from Kemper. In 1848, McDowell began construction of a new building nearby. It was built to his own unusual specifications, and it was at this place where Joseph McDowell's bizarre reputation truly got its start. The college building was designed with two large Greek revival wings that flanked an octagonal tower. The tower had been fitted with an unusual deck on top of it, around which six cannons had been placed to defend the school against possible attack. And speaking of attack, McDowell also kept the school stocked with as many as 1,500 muskets that could be handed out to the students. During patriotic holidays, McDowell would pass out the rifles and march the students into a field along 7th Street. After a short speech, he would give the command to fire off the guns and to set off the cannons in the direction of Mill Creek. The staff and students at the Christian Brothers College next door always made a hasty retreat when they saw the medical students assembling on the lawn. The building had other unusual elements as well. The central column of the tower had slots that were intended to hold the remains of the McDowell family members after their deaths. The bodies were to be placed in alcohol-filled copper tubes and suspended to enhance preservation. This was apparently some sort of eerie foreshadowing of cryonics, which involves bodies that are frozen for possible revival in the future when medical advances made resurrection possible. McDowell designed the college to be absolutely modern for the middle 19th century. There was a dissecting room on the top floor, a chemical room, a lecture hall, a laboratory, and a dispensary where the poor were treated for free. There was also a rooftop observatory and offices for the doctors on staff. There was a gigantic theater where students could observe dissection by light from six massive windows. McDowell also opened a museum that contained more than 3,000 specimens of birds and animals from all over North America. There were minerals, fossils, mummies, and antiquities, all of which could be viewed for a 25-cent admission. The clergy and medical men were admitted for free. The collection became nationally famous. The building was equipped with all of the latest medical facilities, but there were no living quarters for the students at the school. McDowell and his family lived in a residence at the back of the building, but students were expected to live in boarding houses in the neighborhood. 
McDowell had invested $150,000 of his own money into the school, and at the time it was the largest building devoted exclusively to medicine in the United States. Students were required to complete two years of study in order to graduate, which is well beyond most other schools in the city and the country at the time. In most schools, it was possible for students to graduate without ever having actually cared for an actual patient, but that was not the case at McDowell's College. The poor and indigent were treated for free at the college, which meant plenty of hands-on experience. McDowell was more than just the founder of the school. He was an often terrifying force of nature, but he was kind to the people he cared about, mostly his family and students, and his medical lectures were legendary. His students loved him. He socialized with them, took them fishing and hunting, and even loaned them money when it was needed. But there was no question that he was a peculiar man. During the 1849 cholera epidemic that ravaged St. Louis, McDowell was widely praised for his valiant care of the sick and the heroic measures that he took to save lives, but such things were hardly balanced out by his strange behavior and wildly racist views. Even in the mid-19th century, McDowell's lack of decorum could get him into trouble. He was often described as having an erratic temperament that approached insanity. And he was often said to be horribly jealous and suspicious of other doctors in schools. He was a member of the political party that was dedicated to purifying American politics by curbing the influence of immigrants, particularly Irish Catholics and Germans. Strangely, he became well known for being generous to the poor and caring for the sick, but constantly talked about his hatred for immigrants, blacks, and Catholics, usually the same people he was caring for. As the Civil War loomed, he became a rabid believer in secession, spoke about the rights of the southern states, and praised the institution of slavery. To make his political positions quite clear, he often placed a loaded revolver on the table in front of him. He gave lectures, like some crazed street preacher, while standing on street corners in St. Louis. He did so while wearing a breastplate of armor, believing that his enemies might try and kill him at any time. But it was not his ideas about politics and race that made people hate and fear Dr. McDowell. It was his nocturnal business in the local graveyards. St. Louis residents were terrified of the idea that their loved ones were going to end up on the dissecting tables of the local medical college. At McDowell's school, great emphasis was put on anatomy, so of course cadavers were needed for study. McDowell and his students studied the newspapers looking for deaths and funerals, hoping to find the freshest corpses. Thanks to this, the school was usually superstitiously avoided by locals, but occasionally a few courageous citizens might be stirred into action. The disappearance of a German immigrant woman started a riot at the McDowell College when rumors spread that she'd been killed and turned into a medical specimen. Everyone knew that Dr. McDowell hated immigrants, so it seemed quite possible that he might have killed one. The woman was later found, however, wandering the streets of Alton, Illinois in a demented state. Other incidents also occurred, and when they did, McDowell put his cannons and muskets into use. On one occasion, he actually loosed a bear that he kept chained up in the school's basement into the mob. The crowd scattered quickly, and the bear returned unharmed to his lair. As a side note, I have to mention that the bear lived there for several years before dying of natural causes. When it died, McDowell had the creature stuffed, and it became an exhibit in his museum. It would be another incident involving a stolen corpse that it would have a great impact on the life of Joseph McDowell. In fact, it would change his entire outlook on the idea of life after death, ghosts, and the spirit world. The incident so unsettled him that he turned away from his strict religious upbringing and became a devout spiritualist who believed in communication with the dead. At one time, he'd been an outspoken critic of anyone who believed in spirits and other such frauds without foundation, as he called it, but that was before the ghost of his dead mother saved his life. 
A young German girl who lived on the south side of the city near the school died one day of an unusual disease. McDowell and his students became determined to steal her body for study in the lab. It was quickly removed from its burial place and hidden at the college. News spread of the theft and many of the local Germans became angry and vowed to break into the school and find the body. But Dr. McDowell had been warned of the break-in in advance. So he hurried to the school and started to take her to the attic. As he was climbing the stairs, his light went out and when it did, he claimed he saw the ghost of his mother in the hallway gesturing to him to quickly take the body upstairs. Then she disappeared. Shaken, McDowell did as she said and planned to escape from the building, but before he could, a number of armed German men from the neighborhood entered the building to search for the corpse. McDowell knew they would kill him if he was discovered. He looked into a darkened room and saw his mother's ghost again, surrounded by an eerie white light. She pointed to the empty dissecting table where the girl's body had been lying a short time before. After hearing footsteps on the stairs, McDowell jumped onto the table, pulled a sheet over himself and, well, pretended to be dead. The men eventually entered the room and began lifting the sheets off other bodies that had been placed there for dissection. When they passed the table where McDowell lay, one of the men even remarked, hey, here's a fellow who died in his boots. I guess he's a fresh one. Well, McDowell was too afraid to move. He lay there paralyzed with fear. Just as he was about to panic, he said that his mother's voice whispered in his ear, urging him to be still. So he did. And the men left the room. A little while later, he heard them go downstairs and leave the building. The stolen corpse was never discovered, and neither was Dr. McDowell. After McDowell's encounter with his mother's ghost, he became fascinated with the spirit world. He hosted a series of lectures on spiritualism and regularly attended seances throughout the city. When Kate and Maggie Fox, the young woman who had founded this spiritualist movement in New York, came to St. Louis, he was among the first to buy tickets for their public event. McDowell's newfound respect for the spirit world often affected many of his decisions and new ideas, especially those concerning his family. After his spirit encounter, he began to be concerned about their eventual deaths. He hated to think of their decay after death, so he planned to encase them in copper tubes and install them in slots inside of the medical college's main tower when they died. Later, however, when preserved bodies were discovered in Mammoth Cave in Kentucky, he became fascinated with the idea of placing the bodies in caves where the natural powers of saltpeter might allow them to last indefinitely. Sadly, he soon had the chance to test his theory. After his 14-year-old daughter, Amanda, died from pneumonia, he purchased a cave in Hannibal, Missouri and placed her body there. She was preserved inside of a copper tube lined with glass which was filled with alcohol. She was hidden away inside of the cave where McDowell assumed she'd be safe. But unknown to the doctor, local children used the cave as a playground of sorts, often wandering about the maze of passages on warm afternoons. One of these local children was a young man named Samuel Clemens, who went on to become Mark Twain. He wrote about the strange and copper tube in his book, Life on the Mississippi. Amanda's body remained in the cave for two years, but the number of people who came to see her and move the tube around and peer inside eventually forced McDowell to abandon his idea and have her buried next to her mother, who had died after Amanda had. Oddly, none of the slots that had been designed into the walls of the medical college were ever used to hold the bodies of McDowell's family. After McDowell removed Amanda's body from the cave, it was later sold. When Mark Twain's stories of Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn became popular, people began calling it Mark Twain's Cave. As his books became even more popular, the public demand for access to the cave grew, and it became commercialized in 1886. It's now the oldest show cave in America, west of the Mississippi River.
Today, the remote section of the cave where McDowell's daughter was placed is not regularly shown to the touring public, but the tale of the body in the glass and copper tube remains a spooky highlight of the tour. But is there more to this story than just the weird experiment? Rumors persist that the cave is haunted by the ghost of Amanda McDowell. Tour guides have spoken of feeling an overwhelming cold chill, only to turn and see a young girl standing behind them. She's only seen for an instant, wearing a long white gown. She smiles and then turns and walks away. Visitors to the cave, unaware of the unusual story, have also seen her on occasion. They're puzzled about the presence of a young woman in an old-fashioned dress who vanishes into a section of the cave that's off-limit to tourists. One has to wonder why the doctor's daughter might linger behind in a place that she never knew in life. Did her spirit stay with her body after it was moved to the cave? If so, then perhaps this means that Dr. McDowell's ideas about life and death were not so eccentric after all. By the early 1860s, McDowell's college was disrupted by war. The doctor's outspoken support of the Southern cause was well known. He wrote scathing letters to anti-slavery leaders, gave fiery pro-Confederate speeches on St. Louis street corners, and constantly harassed his pro-Union colleagues, but this was still not enough. In March 1861, he addressed the college's graduating class and told them that if a war did occur between the Northern and Southern states, he would leave St. Louis to act as a surgeon in the Confederate Army. If he survived, he told them, he would someday return and resume his duties at the college. He managed to keep both promises. In the following weeks, he crated up his muskets and shipped them south in boxes that were labeled as polished marble. In May 1861, he and his son Drake left St. Louis and took two of the school's cannons with them. They joined the Confederate Army and Dr. McDowell spent the war years as a surgeon on the battlefield. Meanwhile, life in St. Louis went on without Joseph McDowell. Soon after he fled from the city and abandoned the medical college, it was seized by the Union Army. It was first used as a recruiting office for St. Louis and then converted into barracks. Soon though, the arrival of Confederate prisoners of war turned the college into the Gracio Street Prison to help relieve the overcrowding of a smaller and now terribly overcrowded prison in the city. There were 2,000 Confederates captured in southwest Missouri who were on their way to St. Louis. There had to be a place to put them. In December 1861, work began to convert the college into a prison. Fifty men were put to work removing dissected corpses and museum specimens from the building and replacing them with sleeping bunks, blankets, and buckets to be used as toilets. The first prisoners arrived on December 22nd. They were marched from the train depot to the prison. None of the men wore uniforms and their clothing was tattered and torn. Many of them had no shoes. They had wrapped rags around their feet. Few had coats and were wrapped in blankets, quilts, and buffalo robes. The officer's clothing was in better shape, but not by much. Things would not get any better for them at the prison. It was soon obvious that the prison had been poorly planned and prepared. It was immediately overcrowded by two-thirds capacity. There was no ventilation. There were not enough toilets, inside or out. Prison officials demanded that the prisoners keep the prison clean. They were to sweep the floors every day and scrub them every two weeks but the overcrowded conditions made this impossible. The water used to scrub the floors seeped through to the rooms below, making the situation even worse. 
chaos reigned. Prisoners of all types were housed in the same rooms. There were Confederate soldiers who were prisoners of war, suspected Southern sympathizers, bushwhackers, spies, Union deserters, Union soldiers arrested for criminal activity, and although separated from the rest of the population, but often confined with just one door between them, women who were accused of harboring fugitives or sympathizing with the South. Discipline in the prison was harsh. Guards were ordered to shoot anyone who not only tried to escape, but even who simply stuck a head or a hand outside of a window. Guards at the prison were frequently accused of shooting prisoners who had not committed any offense. They were just practicing their aim. The prisoners were locked in dungeons, placed in chains, and even hanged for the slightest offense. The filthy dark chambers in which the prisoners were kept was described as being in utter disregard to the rules of hygiene. Every kind of sickness imaginable was contained in every bunk room. A Confederate officer, Captain Griffin Frost, who kept a journal of his time at the prison, wrote, All through the night can be heard coughing, swearing, singing, and praying, sometimes drowned out by almost unearthly noises, issuing from uproarious gangs, laughing, shouting, stamping, and howling, making the night hideous with their unnatural clang. It is surely, he wrote, hell on earth. The medical college had been divided into sections in which the prisoners were housed. They had taken over the basement, the classrooms, and the amphitheater, which had been the pride of the medical school with its large area to view the dissection of cadavers and its six gothic windows. It was converted into two separate floors. One of them was a hospital and the other a dungeon for punishment. All of the large rooms were fitted with three-tier double bunks, but as the prison became more crowded, men with no bunks slept on the floor. The rooms were extremely cold in the winter and impossible to heat. There were only two stoves in each room to warm more than 200 men. On an upper floor was the hospital. When the medical college had been in operation, this had been Dr. McDowell's Museum of Curiosities. There's no mention of what happened to the exhibits and artifacts once the federal soldiers moved in to renovate the building. The attic of the area, where McDowell had hidden the body of the young German girl and subsequently saw his mother's ghost, was used as a room to store the bodies of those who died in the hospital. The hospital contained 76 bunks and was arranged into four wards. Most of the sick were cared for by Confederate surgeons who had been taken prisoner and had volunteered for sick duty under the direction of a federal medical officer. Hospital attendants were detailed from among the prisoners. During the prison's operations, smallpox ran rampant through the prison population along with outbreaks of measles, pneumonia, vermin infestations, and the war's most accomplished killer, chronic diarrhea. The St. Louis Republican newspaper called the hospital filthy and unhealthy. And as the war continued on, the prison became more horrifying. Inmate numbers soared while the sanitary conditions and food rations declined. Illness continued to wreak havoc at the prison, with the hospitals always filled and the sick and dying men left lying on the floor. The dawn of each new day would reveal as many as four dead stretched out on the cold stone. By the start of 1863, conditions if possible, had worsened. In March, a new smallpox epidemic broke out. More prisoners arrived and the polluted conditions in the lower rooms declined further. Lice and bed bugs, invading hair, clothing, and blankets made things even more unbearable. Federal officials investigated the conditions at the prison, but it did little good. They concluded their report by saying it is difficult to conceive how human beings can continue to live in such an atmosphere. Many of them were unable to continue to live. Prisoners died at an alarming rate, sometimes as many as six or more in a single day. 
Thanks to outbreaks of smallpox and typhoid between 1864 and January 1865, half of the men in the prison hospital died from some sort of disease. Into late 1864, the prison population continued to rise. Horrified at the rate of death and illness within the prison walls, Union Surgeon General George Rex reported that despite the attention that has been called to the problem of overcrowding, the evil still continues unabated. And it continued unabated until the end of the war. By that time, conditions behind the walls had collapsed beyond all imagination. In the summer of 1865, one of Dr. McDowell's sons, James, managed to get the now empty building back into the hands of the McDowell family. The state was forced to return the college to Dr. McDowell, who had returned from the South just as he said he would. His custom-designed medical building had been completely redesigned in his absence. The building had endured structural damage and the interior was a nightmare. The condition of the place was appalling. Nothing had been done when the prison closed. The guards and officials simply walked away and left all of the filth behind. McDowell refused to give up on the college he had founded. He received a presidential pardon from Andrew Johnson, and the letter he sent asking for the return of his citizenship shows that even the fiercely stubborn doctor knew that he was defeated. But that didn't mean that he accepted his defeat graciously. When the renovations of the building began, McDowell left just one room as it had been when the prison was in operation. He placed a sign above the doorway that referred to it as hell and inside he placed a rattlesnake, a crocodile, statues of Satan, and a gallows where President Lincoln was hanged in effigy. McDowell spent the last years of his life attempting to rebuild the medical college and restore it to its former glory, something he never quite achieved. McDowell died of pneumonia at the age of only 63 on September 18, 1868. He never really recovered from the shock of returning to St. Louis to find his life's work destroyed. He was buried in Bell Fountain Cemetery next to his wife and children, who had been moved from across the river in 1867. Dr. McDowell's grave remained unmarked until 1942, when members of what is now the Washington University School of Medicine erected a stone in his honor. McDowell's school building, the place of so much pain and suffering during the war, was left vacant for years after his death. In June 1878, the South Wing was condemned as unsafe and was demolished by order of the fire department. The octagonal tower and the north wing remained until 1882 when they were also torn down. Nothing remains of the structure today. Most have forgotten that it once stood on what is now that Ralston Perina lot. But for years after the building was closed, it was anything but forgotten by the people who lived in the neighborhood. For those people, many of whom were the German immigrants that Dr. McDowell despised, the old building was a haunted and forbidding place. This was not only because of the horrific experiments they believed that McDowell and his students conducted on the dead, but because of the ghosts. They were convinced that the spirits of the men who had died at the Gracio Street prison still lingered at the site. Stories swirled about the neighborhood. It was said that ghosts were often seen peering out of the darkness of the gaping windows. Locals saw faces and wisps of clothing as they passed by the place. The images appeared and then vanished into the shadows. 
Most feared the crumbling old structure, but those who dared to enter heard cries, mournful screams, and the sound of men weeping, and yet the interior was empty. The descendant of a German man who once lived nearby told me a story that had been passed down in his family. As a boy, his ancestor had played inside of the building with his friends on several occasions. An acquaintance had claimed that he had come face to face with a ghost inside and would never return, but the other boys didn't let this stop them, especially on a warm summer afternoon. But they soon found out that the bright sunshine outside was not enough to penetrate the darkness of the building. The gloomy, thick atmosphere made them realize they might have made a mistake by going inside. They wandered about, though, poking into rooms and walking up and down the dusty corridors, and then they heard the sound. It seemed to be coming from the octagonal tower. As my witness told me, his great-grandfather had recalled the sounds as a loud, screeching, banging, and yelling that made the blood curdle. It echoed through the whole structure. The boys had no idea where it was coming from or what it was, but it sent them running out of the building. Many years later, he swore that he never went into the building again. A few years after that, it was torn down. What had the boys heard that day? Was it ghosts or perhaps some echo from the past? When I first heard this story, I couldn't help but remember the accounts that I'd read about the Gracio Street prison. I remembered a quote that had appeared in the journals of Captain Griffin Frost, the Confederate prisoner who had described the place as hell on earth. He wrote that on many nights it was impossible to sleep because of the sounds that came from the lower levels of the prison. The quiet sounds of incarcerated men were sometimes drowned out by almost unearthly noises, he wrote, laughing, shouting, stamping, and howling, making the night hideous with their unnatural clang. Could this have been what the boys heard that day? Was it history repeating itself as a haunting recording of the past, or were the sorrowful ghosts of those tortured prisoners trying to make their presence known? I wish there was a way that young German boy and Captain Frost could have compared notes about their experiences in that hellish place, but they have both long since departed this world for what is hopefully a better one. But there is one thing that we do know for sure. In less than four decades, Dr. McDowell and his strange medical school created enough horror to last several lifetimes and perhaps beyond. She just gets nervous. You. Hey, nobody's taking our picture. It's okay. Yeah. Okay, we're see. ready. All right. Welcome to American Hauntings Podcast, where we discuss history, hauntings, legends, lore, and all things paranormal. You are listening to episode 15, which is the second episode of season two, which delves into the hauntings of St. Louis, Missouri. I'm your co-host, Cody Beck, and with me, my co-host is author, historian, crime buff, and founder of American Hauntings, Troy Taylor. And I also want to add with us as we record today is uh, Lisa, our company manager, and Lux. Hey! Lux is here recording Luxie. with us. So, and she has been very quiet during this very long yes. episode. Yes. <laughs> so long she has monologue. done very, very well being a very, very quiet, good girl. So, and we appreciate so, but she wanted to add something to the podcast. Are you ready? Okay. You ready to play it? Okay, play it. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> I think I think Mary is on. Oh, it's still going. It's long. <laughs> I think I was gonna say this is the scariest toy ever. We I think Mary is on her last legs, don't you? Yeah. <laughs> I think Mary got... lost her sheep somewhere. <laughs> yeah. When Lux first got that toy, I really did not like it, and I'm starting to like it more and more. <laughs> <laughs> now that it's become more and more the creepy, the more the batteries wear out, <laughs> okay. the better it gets. Okay, Lux. Good job. Here we go. Thanks, Lux. We're Thanks, out of here. Lux. Have fun, guys. Yeah. All right. Well, we are uh, recording episode 15, which seems hard to believe that we've made 15 episodes, uh, for one thing. Uh, but yeah, for for yeah, for many reasons. But um, we are getting ready as we record this. We are getting ready and making preparations for uh, an upcoming event. By the time you listen to this, it will only be. A very short time away, less than two weeks away, yep. our Dead of Winter event, um, which is February 10th um, in, at the Mineral Springs in Alton, Illinois. And uh, Dead of Winter is a free event that we do every year. And when I say free, it's free with the donation of a canned good or non-perishable item uh, for area food banks. Uh, it's something we try to do every year. Um, the food banks have always told us that things that donations usually dry up after Christmas. So uh, when we do this in February, it's usually kind of a welcome thing for a lot of the areas. So um, that's all we ask um, for you to come and bring a canned good or something for admission. It's going to be a fun event. It starts at 10 o'clock in the morning, runs most of the day. Uh, we've got speakers and presenters coming in. We're going to be doing, and that's kind of our plug here, a live episode of the show. Well, we're we'll be recording an episode of the yes. show. It's going to be live when we record it. It will not be live at the time it's air. Am I making any sense here? Is this, <laughs> yeah, I'm starting to I'm starting to get confused, but uh, we'll be recording it live. So um, we're going to be doing a a winter story that is not part of our St. Louis season. It's going to be something separate and it will be a separate episode outside of the series. And we're hoping for um, audience interaction. Um, we hoping that people will come, um, ask some questions, um, maybe leave some of the comments that we're always trying to get everybody to leave us on uh, iTunes. Um, maybe leave some comments or give us some comments on what they think about the podcast, uh, what we could do differently. As long as it's constructive, yes. uh, we're always happy to listen. So anyway, we're going to be doing that on February 10th. Um, in June, June 22nd, 23rd, we'll be doing another live episode um, and we're doing that at the Haunted America Conference. Mm -hmm. And so that's going to be a lot of fun. Um, tickets for that went on sale January 8th. Uh, a lot of stuff is filling up already. So if you are planning to attend, it is time to make your reservations. Uh, so anyway, we'll, uh, we'll hope to see you at that. So, and anyway, as always, we want to thank everybody for the great response we've gotten to the podcast. If I sound like I'm hurrying through this, it's because this is like the longest episode ever yeah. and we need to get to the rest of it. So, um, but I do want to throw out our regular stuff and thank everybody again to the great response we've had for the podcast. You know, we're happy to be back with season two. We took a break in December and uh, we are back now that it's January and uh, with new episodes. And uh, we really appreciate all the feedback we've gotten. And we hope that you will continue to leave us uh, reviews on iTunes. Uh, wherever you listen to it, if you go on iTunes, leave us a review. 
it helps a lot of people find it. We get a lot of people who say, hey, I found this podcast by accident, uh, just looking for kind of haunted podcasts. So um, if you have a friend who is not as smart as you are and uh, they're looking for a podcast to listen to, pass it on to them. So anyway, but let's let's get into this episode. Yeah. I know you have many comments and questions. I do. Um, uh, and be, jokes, I'm uh, pretty sure. So, so. Many, so many jokes. <laughs> uh, yeah, I want to say... First off, uh, it's going to take us just a little bit to get to the ghost, but that's because this story that we're going to talk about is so batshit crazy, uh, and I, I love it. There's so much going on, and uh, yeah, tons of comments. Um, first off, though, I'd like to start off acknowledging the contrast between the alleged quotes, at least, from the great Mark Twain, uh, who becomes relevant later on in this episode, um, about Alton and then about St. Louis. Oh, yeah. And so in St. Louis, uh, the quote is, the first time I ever saw St. Louis, I could have bought it for $6 million, and it was a mistake in my life that I did not do it. Compare that to the quote of Alton, uh, a dismal little river <laughs> yeah, town. Yeah, no kidding. So thanks, Sam. <laughs> no kidding. Awesome. <laughs> no kidding. Awesome. Okay, but to dive into this episode, so Dr. Joseph McDowell, uh, Essentially what I'm understanding is that you didn't really need a lot of education in the early mid 1800s to necessarily become a doctor. And I think it's pretty interesting that a lot of our stories take place in hospitals know, and prisons right? and right. Uh, seems to be kind of a running theme in a lot of our stories. Well, you know, the thing with being a doctor back then and you know, and I and I touched on that kind of briefly. Um, you know, prior to the 1830s and 40s, um, you didn't need a lot of education because most people weren't doing a lot of doctoring. Mm -hmm. um, they were healing instead, which which means really they were doing, you know, um, potions and herbs and, you know, any yeah. kind of medicines that you would come up with that would treat your illnesses back then. You know, the operations that were being done, if someone was shot, um, you know, and even into the Civil War when they didn't have time, uh, they just hacked your arm off. Or if you yep. got shot in the arm, you just lost the arm. They, you, you, nobody was going to dig that thing out because it was going to become infected. Yeah. The more you dug at it, the more infected it was going to become because people didn't know you needed to sterilize your equipment back yep. then. Um, and so there were so many germs. There were, of course, no antibiotics. That mm -hmm. didn't happen until the 20th century. So, you know, there was no treatment for these things. People would become, you know, ill with gangrene and would die anyway. So you might as well just lop it off, you know, burn off the, the cauterize the wound. And then you, you know, saw, you know, it was really common to see, you know, guys with one arm and one leg or, you know, anything like that back then. So when you, you know, don't need a lot of training to be a doctor, anybody could hang out a shingle and become, it was like being a lawyer. Yeah. I mean, back then you read a book about law and hey, I'm a lawyer, yeah. um, you know, you didn't have to really go to school. But all that started to change into the into the 1830s and 40s when people began really delving into, and it didn't start in this country, really it started, most of it started over in Scotland. That's where a lot of the big medical movement was mm -hmm. at that time. And where, you know, um, Ephraim McDowell, mm -hmm. uh, Joseph's father, or uncle rather, went over to Scotland to train to be a doctor. But of course, he, you know, there were no license or anything. Yeah. In this country, there was no such thing as a medical license back then. Right. So you became a doctor and you started operating on people. And the only way to find out where everything was located was cutting somebody open. Yes. And that seems like a bad plan to do with someone who's alive. Yes. So they started doing it on dead bodies. Right. And, um, People weren't sure how they felt about that yes, uh, back I'm, when it started. And I love this because it leads into one of like the creepiest, but uh, I think most necessary concepts. So cadavers were needed for medical school, and that totally makes sense. I think it's a 
terrible yet kind of necessary practice because I mean it you need bodies to learn and there weren't a lot of ways to get these bodies um, so people were you know they were grave robbing and, and doing different things they were doing what they had to do to get these bodies but and I think it's it's a it's very interesting that McDowell kind of started off helping his uncle and one of the things he started off helping him with was getting bodies, bodies. Right. I think that's never a good foot to kind of go <laughs> you, can't, right. you can't really you rise up from that yeah, um, yeah. I think it's also kind of a short step because uh, to, to pretty much him being like okay yeah students uh, steal me a body I, right. I need it for, right. for research purposes. right well and you know and but they felt like they were doing it for just reasons yeah. I mean they felt it was for a good cause I mean I'm sure that that most of these guys although you know um, maybe there was some excitement to it too as far as some of these young students went but um, you know, they felt like they were doing it because it was a necessity. So, yeah. you know, it, it took a lot of work and a lot of planning to go and, and, and watch out for people who died and to get the freshest body possible because right. you don't want one that's already decayed. You know, and somebody who's been in the ground for a week, that's, you know, you've no lost, good. it's no good. So you want the freshest one possible. So, you know, that's where a lot of the things that came about during the Victorian period as far as you know people started encasing their bodies in concrete yeah. and metal bars put over graves and a lot of times and i didn't get into it with the with the story but a lot of people would station their relatives with shotguns at the and they would it would work in shifts right and would sit around a fresh grave until it was long enough for the body to have decayed mm -hmm. and wouldn't be of any use to the doctors anymore. Ah. And so they would just sit there and guard the bodies until right. it was too late. And that's also know. a good defense in case they came back as a vampire, you're right <laughs> yeah, there. Yeah, right. Somebody's right down. there to put them down. So this is, <laughs> or a zombie. <laughs> right, exactly. So this is a serious question, though. Um, we can talk about it more later if need be, but I'm curious, with, with the war, did that help? provide a surplus of bodies or you know, are they too damaged or I think they, they were probably too damaged and besides that the you know the battles were taking places at locations that were too far away from medical mm. schools you know right. um, they were in too distant of a location and the damage that was being done to the bodies and besides that it wasn't like they were scooping the bodies up right off the field uh -huh. after a battle was over sometimes they would sit for days weeks even um, you know in Gettysburg a lot of the bodies, you know, 60 some thousand men were killed. Yep. And so you had bodies everywhere all around this town. And a lot of them were pretty hastily buried in the weeks after. And, and you're talking about July. Yeah. So you had a lot of heat. And in the days and weeks that followed, they were thrown into trenches and stuff. And in fact, it wasn't until November, months later, mm -hmm. that they actually started moving the bodies into the National Cemetery. Oh, so man. I think with most of the battlefields, I think that the bodies were too damaged or too decayed to really be of any use to the medical schools. Right. So great, great source of the traumatic history that we like to talk about. Yeah, yeah. All the time. Yeah. All right. So moving on. So 1840, uh, Dr. Joseph McDowell founds the McDowell Medical School as part of the uh, medical department of Kemper College in St. Louis. Right. But eventually financial pro financial problems cause him to strike out on his own. Well, see, colleges were, uh, were one of those things, too, that kind of like becoming a doctor or a lawyer, anybody that wanted to start a college, uh -huh. you know, you could just, you know, open up a, you know, a, a college in a building and say, hey, I'm a college. I'm a college. And uh, people would, I mean, schools were not regulated any more than, than the medical licenses were at the time. So you so, told me this wasn't necessarily an accredited Well, I, I don't know. I mean, it, the fact that they did remain open as long as they did, I mean, almost seven years. Yeah. You know, I think that they had some 
you know, some teachers and, and staff, well, McDowell was, as crazy as he may have been, mm -hmm. he was a brilliant surgeon. Okay. And the fact that they attracted somebody of his caliber, I'm sure that most of the other professors at the school were of a similar caliber. Mm -hmm. So I think that lasting seven years like they did, they must have been doing okay, but yet, you know, again, it was a business management kind of thing. It, it had nothing to do with the actual school right. or the learning there. It, it was a business management problem, and um, they just didn't have the money they needed to keep the school running. Gotcha. So McDowell just started off on his own. I like it, You're making your own way. Uh, so this school, can you tell me about the location? How do we pronounce this road? Well, that's that's the that's the thing. Um, when I first started, now I had just moved to the Alton area in the in the 90s and into the St. Louis area, and started researching this 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 whole story, and I had absolutely no idea, mm -hmm. and the internet was around, but you couldn't. It was a little harder to find things on the internet back then. Yeah. So there was no place for me to go, try to find out how to pronounce this school, so or this street. So and St. Louis has a lot of interesting streets as we'll yes. find as in the episodes to come but um i had no idea how to pronounce it and i had called it graduate street because that's what it looked like, it does look like so that. but i had someone who said oh no 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 that's not how you say it it's gratchet street gratchet. and i thought gratchet okay well you know but i thought you know maybe maybe it's correct because you know if you look at uh, well there's a fort and a street in new orleans a fort in illinois and a street in new orleans that looks like Chartrace, mm -hmm. you know, but in front, but they call it Charter. It's just simply Charter. Uh -huh. So I thought, well, who knows? I mean, you know, maybe Gratchet is correct. Actually, it isn't. Um, it's it, not. Uh, the, the technical term is Gracio, and lo but locals call it Gratchet. So uh -huh. Gracio, I went with the French version. That's the one I went with. And um, I, I'm sure a lot of people are going to hate that. And that's, I, I'll, I'll just apologize if you call it Gratchet, more power to you because that's what the locals call it. So call it whatever you want. Um, all you need to know is that there's nothing there now. Yeah, that's so the main thing. I that is the back up. lot at the Ralston Purina Company now. Right, and I looked. So. I looked it up. Yeah, spoiler alert: it's a parking lot. Uh, yeah. So, but I have to ask a question: since there, since it was a school turned into a prison, prison got overrun. We know how Civil War prisons go. Is this another example of a parking lot built on top of dead bodies? Well, not as far as I know. Um, okay. I have never run across anything that, like in Alton with the penitentiary, that there were any burials that took place at the prison. I've never run across any. And that, that doesn't necessarily mean that it never happened. Mm -hmm. All I can tell you is that I've seen no documentation of that. Got it. So I don't know. I can tell you that a lot of people died on that spot. A yeah. lot of people suffered there, even more people suffered, and a lot of people died on the spot where that parking lot is now. Now, whether or not any of them were buried there, that I can't say. Got it. Okay. All right. Well, yeah, I'll take your word for it then since there's no word for it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, so about McDowell, he comes from a long line of military men, politicians, but his uncle, as you mentioned before, was a doctor, and right. he was famous for removing a, oh, yeah, that's a great story. very large tumor. Yeah, yeah, 22 pounds after it was drained. Can yeah. you, can, where was this located? What do you know about it? Well, it's, I mean, there is a, a much longer version of the story, which is hard to read and is pretty disgusting. <laughs> yeah. But uh, apparently it was in her abdomen, and um, I, I, my understanding is she was a, a fairly large woman, I guess, with this tumor, too. Didn't yeah. help. But this, the, the surgery was done on, on his table in his house. Mm -hmm. 
and there were no anesthetics of course you know there was no ether there was no anything back then they probably gave her i don't even know if laudanum was being used at the time they probably got her drunk yeah, gave her um, probably because that seemed to be the standard back in those days and uh, he took to operating on this woman and when he found the tumor to get it out they had to drain it first and he drained it of its you know his, his, its noxious you know yeah. liquids as he described it and um, then when he managed to cut this thing out they waited it was 22 pounds are we sure he didn't just like deliver triplets oh man her? i mean right i mean it would be the same about the same weight but he yeah. took this thing out of the woman and that's why i wanted to assure everybody is as horrific as this sounds and yeah. how you know this must have been like the craziest surgery ever kind yeah. of thing going on but she lived another 32 years that's i mean crazy. she survived so somehow she survived without any kind of infection or you know anything from being opened up you know mm -hmm. but i think by this time he'd done so much experimentation on cadavers that he kind of knew what he was doing i mean that's why he went to scotland i mean that's where they invented grave robber and you know the stories of burke and hare and yep. the famous grave robbers and i'm sure that you know he brought that home with him and i'm sure he's not the only one i'm sure a lot of other doctors did too and um you know i think by this time he had seen so many dead bodies that he you know knew how to cut them open yeah and knew where things were located by then and uh managed uh, to pull off the surgery which yeah, is and if not for the pretty cadavers, grim he probably pretty grim known. that's right it's exactly right but okay so this is the time that that uh, joe is working with his uncle and he's helping him steal dead bodies as we mentioned before uh, but this is when he starts kind of a, a pattern that you notice where he holds grudges this one was he wanted to marry his uncle's daughter? Right, his, his cousin. He right. fell in love with his cousin Mary and tried to convince his uncle to tell her that he had to marry Joseph. And um, his, his uncle, being fairly progressive yeah. uh, for the time, said no. You know, she can decide who she wants to marry. I'm not going to tell her what to do. And he couldn't win her over, and Joseph... Uh, lost his shit and yeah. I mean really packed up his things took his ball and went home you know <laughs> yes. um, and went on to medical school you know I guess thinking that maybe I'll get a real education you know my uncle's a louse and never talk to him again for the rest of his life this they never spoke crazy. again um, and that you know like we said that is just the beginning I yes. mean of these crazy things and then he hooks up with a guy who's just as crazy as he is yeah as far as I can tell so his so. mentor Daniel dr. Daniel Drake uh, seemed also very brilliant and oh brilliant. yeah also a genius surgeon I mean yeah. the first medical the re first real medical license that was awarded to anybody you know outside of the original 13 colonies pretty yeah. much you know west of the Alleghenies um, and again was was a genius but kind of a crazy one you know he he was the same way you know he he felt like you know he'd been first he was embarrassed by this duel you know yes. that he didn't take part in and his buddy his his pal steps in and says you know I well gotcha. i'll take his place because otherwise you know you're going to be dishonored yeah and so he steps in to take his place and get shot and Ugh. he bails rather than you know stick around and stick by his buddy he bails but he's so embarrassed by it you know and then he helps found an, a medical school that he pissed off everyone there my guess i mean i'm i'm guessing here what happened because everyone joined up against him and voted him out and right. he was one of the founders 
Um, so it's kind of like being thrown out of your own company, right. you know. And, and then he said, "I'm going to start another one." So I'll start another one, and I'll show you. He's Steve Jobs. Did. Yeah, he. I'll start another one. I'll show you, and I'm going to tell everybody that your school sucks, and mine is the best. In fact, I'm going to, you know, get my my young student here to help me out with this, you know. And he's got, you know, Joseph McDowell, who's you know borderline nuts, and he starts literally going around in bars and in, uh, in street corners and restaurants and everywhere in town talking about how horrible the other medical school is. Oh, you should never send your kids there. It's terrible. I'm, you know, I'm sure it's a, it's a, it's a charnel house. They, they got dead bodies everywhere, right. you know, and even though they're doing the same thing. And that was really, that was the beginning of the nutty behavior that McDowell would have the rest of his life. Yeah, and, and it's I noticed, like I said, the patterns earlier. So McDowell, he has a son and names it after Drake, mm -hmm. and he also married Drake's Mary, sister. Marries his sister, yeah. And so it seems like he gets these mentors and becomes, like, really, really attached to them and wants to somehow be involved in their family and, like, be just like them. Right. And it's, it's interesting because, you know, that line between brilliance and, like, insanity yeah. seems very thin, yeah. and it's very evident. And it seems these like these two guys sort of fed off each other, yeah. too, you know, because... You know, they, they took up this campaign to discredit this other school together. But then when McDowell packed up and moved west to St. Louis, suddenly Drake decides that he's going to go back to that original school. Yeah. He, he kind of comes back to him hat in hand, you know, to get back on the board. And they let him back on, and then he dies. Yeah, <laughs> so, and, I yeah. mean, kind of a, at a cruel twist of fate, he dies. Uh, it's, yeah. But it's almost like once he got away from... McDowell, he's kind of like, why am I, why am I still doing this? Right. It's like they fed off each other, yeah. you know. So yeah, that's that's interesting. And it's okay. So McDowell, like you said, he graduates, works with Drake until he comes to St. Louis, joins Kemper College. Um, and in this quote you have here, it says his reputation as a talented surgeon quickly spread, along with tales of his wild hair, passion for medicine, his eccentric behavior, his loud, opinionated overwhelming but his enthusiasm for medicine inspired great loyalty in his students he reminds me of someone and i want your help with this because it's like it's it's a combination of like i picture this guy as a combination of like willy wonka and hh H. Holmes yeah. or something like i can't quite figure it out but just an eccentric and like gatsby or something but just an eccentric crazy crazy guy well i think i think it's one of those i think he was one of kind of the one of the original nutty professors okay, you know i mean right. he was so focused on only a handful of things uh, I mean, obviously, he cared about his family, and he was around. He was around with his family and his wife and his kids and stuff. But I also think that you know, and totally dedicated to the medical school. Yep. You know, his students loved him. But he he had these like weird side passions, mm -hmm. which really, and I didn't get. It was so it's so complicated. I didn't get into all of his political stuff. Mm -hmm. But he was a member of what was known at the time as the Know-Nothing Party. That's what they were called. They were also the Native Americans. Mm. Um, do you remember, have you seen the gangs in New York? It's been a long time. Okay, Le but Leonardo you've seen DiCaprio. the gangs in New York, right. Yeah. And Daniel Day-Lewis plays, you know, Bill the Butcher, yeah. who is their, their, their gang, which is really a political party, is the Native American Party. That's what McDowell belonged to. Mm -hmm. And they were dedicated to wiping out immigrants. You remember in the movie that they wanted nothing to do with the Irish. They yeah. wanted nothing to do with the immigrants. And this was the party that McDowell belonged to. So, and he was a rabid, rabid member of this society to the point that he would go out on street corners 
and scream at people about how much he hated immigrants, blacks, Catholics, Germans, and Irish, and how he didn't want any of them to, to mess with the purity of America. It's, I mean, if you, if you see the movie and you listen to the things they say, this, that was McDowell. Right. He got so many death threats. He wore that he, he wore a breastplate right? yeah. um, because he was sure that someone was going to shoot him. Um, and often when he would start a political argument, he would go to like a fancy dinner party with people and the talk would turn to politics. It was the 1840s, late 1840s into the 1850s. Right. So Bring you had people War. talking about secession and slavery. And, you know, there might be an abolitionist at this party because one of the things you have to remember again to kind of set the stage is while Missouri was a slave state, mm -hmm. St. Louis was not. Right. So yeah, there were slaves in St. Louis and there were slave auctions that were done in St. Louis. But for the most part, St. Louis was a pro-union town. But mm -hmm. you remember, slavery was legal at the time yeah. in the state of Missouri. So you it wasn't like you were breaking the law, but there were a lot of abolitionists in St. Louis. And mm -hmm. when the Civil War began, St. Louis threw itself to the Union cause. Yeah. That's why Missouri was was always this kind of middle-of-the-road state that could was never decided. Um, the government was pro-Confederacy, but St. Louis, which had all the power, was always pro-union. That's so, probably why McDowell peaced out. Right, exactly, exactly, because it became a federal stronghold in a military position thanks to um, Jefferson Barracks, which we'll talk about in a later episode. Yes. Uh, we'll talk about Jefferson Barracks. There you go. Yep. And uh, so this, this was kind of one of those things where McDowell would go to a party and someone who would start talking about the abolitionist movement or the union um, to make sure that everyone got the idea that he was very firm in his beliefs, he would literally take a pistol out of his coat and put it on the table in front of him yeah. and then start talking. Needless to say, no one argued. Yeah. They just let him talk. But, you know, this is where his reputation came from. On the other side of the coin, though, he runs this medical school, which, school, which has a hospital which treats the, the poor and the indigent, for which free. were all mostly black and immigrants. Right, and he does it for free, correct? And he does it for free. And his students are trained contrast. on these people. And, and you know, during the, during the cholera epidemic, you know, he was lauded in the newspapers for all the great generous work that he did to save people's lives. Yeah. And again, it was the people he claimed to hate so much. Mm -hmm. So he was a, obviously a very weird dude. Yeah. I mean, you know, obviously. Yeah. Um, and I mean, we're going to get into some of his yeah, more eccentric yeah. beliefs. So we talked about his beliefs, but I want to talk about this school, which I think kind of helps, like the way he designed it sort of helps set up just what this guy was all about. So he had his college uh, designed with an octagonal tower with a deck and six cannons on it, as one does. Yeah, and then right. stocked, for your medical school, yes, every medical school should have and cannons. Then stocked with fifteen hundred muskets. Again, again, another necessity for your medical does. school. And I love this. Uh, I love this. This story about during the patriotic holidays, he would arm the students and march them along Seventh Street, um, and then the college next door knew would run for cover. Run for cover, and it sounds yeah. to me like a like eighties movie Animal House. Like <laughs> right, crazy right, right. Thing with, with the students just running amok in the middle of the street. You know, who skin. thought he you know, they thought he walked on water. So I'm sure they were more than happy to get out and, you know, take part in this stuff. As yes. crazy as it seemed, I'm sure it just seemed like a lark to these it's kids. Be fun. You know, I'd I'm sure it. it was fun. Yeah, I'm sure it was a blast. Now the story was is that three of those cannons and I didn't you know, there you'd only put so many details into right. these stories. 
Uh, three of those cannons that they kept on top of the school, allegedly, allegedly, came from Jean Lafitte's pirate ship. Jean Lafitte, who was, you know, one of the saviors of New Orleans yeah. at the beginning and during the, the, okay. the, the War of 1812. Uh, but supposedly three of those cannons, now I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say I doubt it, yeah. but that was the story, you uh, know. But that's how big his legend got, you know, in the city. That's crazy. And so in this central column, too, of the tower, uh, we're going to get into more... Uh, We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsor. If you like the American Hauntings podcast, then you're probably going to like the services, books, and tours offered by our various sponsors, like American Hauntings, Inc., which has been a publisher of books on ghosts and hauntings, crime, and the unexplained in America since 1993. In addition, we also offer tours, overnight ghost hunts, and weekend excursions, plus the Haunted America Conference, which is coming up in June 2018 in Alton, Illinois. You can find out more information about the company at AmericanHauntings.net. Another of our sponsors is It's Raining Zen in the mysterious Mineral Springs Mall in Alton, Illinois. They're Alton's only authentic New Age and metaphysical shop, offering everything from crystals to Himalayan salt lights, healing herbs, charms, tarot cards, and even an assortment of clothing. You can find them on East Broadway in Alton or on Facebook by searching for It's Raining Zen. We're also sponsored by the Best Western Premier Hotel in Alton, Illinois, the home away from home for American hauntings, and the host for the Haunted America Conference. The Best Western Premier is a newly renovated location with facilities for conferences, weddings, an outdoor fire pit, brand new bar, and standalone restaurant and grill. We highly recommend it, and we know you'll love it too while visiting the area. You can find them on College Avenue in Alton or by searching on the Best Western website. We also recommend the I Had That store located at 125 East Main Street in Belleville, Illinois. This is the number one spot in the St. Louis and Southwestern Illinois region for vintage toys and games from the 1970s and 80s, as well as a huge selection of horror-related toys, games, figures, books, and much more. You can find the store on Facebook by searching for I Had That Toy. And now, on with the show. That's crazy. And so in this central column, too, of the tower, uh, we're going to get into more uh, more ghost-like stuff here, but he intended he had slots built in that tower that were intended for the remains of his family, correct? Right, right. And I wanted to ask you about, uh, he was going to put them in big copper tubes and fill them with alcohol, and so what I want to ask you, his grand idea was to basically turn them into giant Moscow mules. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, in a, in a copper mug, right. So, you know, with as much alcohol as possible. But they never now, made it there, and, right? and keep in mind that some of the story, as I was telling it, was... While I to I was telling it, it sounded like that stuff came after, like the stuff with the daughter. Uh -huh. It was all taking place at the same time. There's just no way to tell that story chronologically right. and make it have it make sense. Right. Uh, but when he was building the school, he was put building these tubes, and that was at the same time when his daughter died, in the uh -huh. midst of all this. Okay. And and the same thing with the the ghost of his mother. All this was taking place at the same time. Right. So you had all of this craziness happening all at the same time. And he had believed that, like I said, it was sort of a foreshadowing of, you know, cryonics, you know, the, mm -hmm. the legend that always went around about Walt Disney. Yes. When Walt Disney died, they had him frozen so that they could bring him back someday. Yeah. Um, it's not true, but it's a great story. And I don't even know how it got started. I mean, the really, the really great part of the story was is that Walt was frozen and then was stored in the basement of the Pirates of the Caribbean ride at Disneyland. That was always the story. Now, of course, none of that was true, but this was sort of one of those things. I mean, the idea was that someday, if the bodies were preserved correctly, he mm -hmm. could bring them back to life right. when medical science improved. And he wanted his entire family to be entombed this way. But now, this being the 1840s, this was around the same time that 
in Kentucky, cave tourism became popular. Yeah. So Mammoth Cave was, and that's a whole, that's a whole couple of episodes that someday we'll get to all by themselves. There are so many ghost stories about Mammoth Cave right. and so many weird stories about Mammoth Cave, but they found these mummies when they were exploring the cave. And McDowell got this idea of what, you know, hey, you know what would be even better to preserve these bodies? I'm gonna stick them in a cave somewhere. Yeah. So they'll really stay intact. And that's how he ended up in Hannibal. And that's how the body of Amanda McDowell ended up at Mark Twain Cave right. that we, you know, I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, uh, we went on a, a sixth grade field trip or something to mm -hmm. Mark Twain Cave. I was going to ask if you yeah. ever got to actually go in there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I've been there lots of times. Nice. And um, if you ask, they'll tell you about the body in the tube. It's not always part of the cave tour. Um, I think they normally do it. They save it for like the candlelight tours around Halloween and uh -huh. stuff. But if you ask, they'll tell you about it. Right. And uh, they'll show you down the hallway where it was you know that's not part of the regular tour mm -hmm. um but you know, i said when mark twain was a kid you know and all of his friends they used to go into that cave and uh, later he wrote about it in life on the mississippi of course yep. and i loved how that uh even about the story about this eccentric doctor you were still able to get a dead ghost kid into this story exactly i do it for you man yes. i i there was a story about you know, it had nothing to do with St. Louis. It takes place in Hannibal, but still, you, you know, you had there. Dr. McDell's daughter who's supposed to haunt this cave. You got And there. Uh, I had to put her in there. Well, let's, so. I, I, no one appreciates it more than <laughs> yeah. I do, but let's, I want to use this opportunity to actually, to dive into some ghost stuff now, because you had a yeah. really great quote yeah. in here that I think is something uh, we should definitely talk about. So it, the quote essentially is, one has to wonder why the doctor's daughter might linger behind in a place that she never knew in life. Yeah. And I think that's very interesting to talk about the relationship between where one lives and then where one dies and where one's body kind of ends up and then how hauntings work in there. You well, know? I don't think there are any hard and fast rules. I think well, we've already right. determined that in, in our previous season. I, I don't think there are any hard, fast rules as to exactly what's going to happen. I mean, there were so many different kinds of hauntings. You know, you have the the ones where it's a, a spirit attached to the place they died that, you know, that, that the so-called unfinished business mm -hmm. that keeps people behind. Um, then you've got the hauntings that, which probably explain a lot, and we'll get to that, about the prison building itself later on. Yeah. Um, you know, those these events that happen that leave an impression behind and they repeat themselves, you know, as a haunting. And then you've got something like this, which I can't really explain. Um, maybe it has something to do with the fact that he did try to preserve her body. I don't know. Yeah. I, I don't. I don't know any other reason why her ghost would stick to that cave. Yeah. You know, where her body was put in a metal tube and stuck in a back corner for people to come in and look at. Um, there's either that or there's the other explanation, which may be even more likely um, that it, it, this story's bullshit. Um, <laughs> no. Yeah, no, no. well, it's, it's one of those things where the legend is so good. The story yeah. is so good. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's such a great story to know that this cave, which is like, it's the oldest show cave west of the Mississippi. Mm -hmm. It's been a tourism spot. It has been a tourist trap yeah. since 1886. It's linked to Mark Twain in that Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn show up there yeah. in Injun Joe. That's right. part of the of the Tom Sawyer book. Yeah. You know, Mark Twain spent a little time there and kind of throughout this story about, ah, there was a dead girl in a cave. Literally, it's two paragraphs in Life on the Mississippi. Yeah. It's mentioned, but it's not mentioned much, right? And so I often wonder if maybe that's just another 
facet to the legend. Mm -hmm. It's such a good story that you've got this dead girl in a tube in the cave. Well, shouldn't her ghost, it's so spooky, shouldn't her ghost be there too? Yeah. You know, so I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna sit here and know for a fact what people say they've encountered because there are a lot of stories. I mean, there are tour guides, there are tourists who have come in here and say they've seen the ghost of a little girl. Maybe it has nothing to do with, you know, Amanda McDowell. Maybe yeah. it's some other ghost altogether, but Amanda is such a famous part of the story. The two have been linked together. Yeah. You know, who knows? It, I, I don't know. I can't it, say for sure. It makes sense, but I like to think that she would have chosen to stick around and play in the museum that her father built. Yeah, but, but nothing like left of it. But crazy, it does sound awesome. It does sound You know what it sounds insane. like? It is the Ripley's Believe It or Not Museum yes. of the 1850s. Yes. That's that's exactly what it is. That's what um, I mean. It is, you know, the P.T. Barnum of St. Louis kind of museum, you know, the auditorium kind of thing. And um, it sounds awesome. I mean, it, it really did become known all over the country. Mm -hmm. There was nothing like it at the time. Um, you know, the closest thing you had was really was, you know, the Natural History Museum was just getting started uh, on the East Coast and you had Barnum's Museum, which burned down. Uh, but, you know, most of that was was, you know, freaks that he brought to town or things like the Fiji mermaid that he yes. created out of, you know, a number of different animals. This was this was a natural history museum before they really existed. Awesome. And uh, I'm sure that it was filled with in my mind. No one knows because there's no detailed listing yeah. of what was in the museum. But in my mind, there were jars with like deformed babies in it. And, you know, that kind of stuff yeah. that people would have oohed and awed over. It's like the the uh, the, the Mutter Museum in Philadelphia mm -hmm. um, is, is, you know, is this huge medical museum. But people come because they want to look at the freaky skeletons right. and the, the, the pickled punks. You know, that's why they come to the museum. I've been there, and as you tour it, the place is completely empty as you're going through all the different exhibits about medical science. Mm -hmm. And then you get down into this bottom level, you know, down, you go down the stairs to the bottom, and there's a crowd down there the because they're all gathered around the deformed skeletons and the skeletons of the giants and all that kind of stuff. Nice. You know, and I'm picturing that this was probably a lot like that. Yeah. I mean, at least in my mind. Yeah, I mean, this would make a great movie. No, I'm telling you, it really I was would. Thinking, you know? It reminds me of something I feel like I've seen in the movie, but I like the idea of the Ripley's Believe It or Not thing. I like thinking that Dean Cain's walking around showcasing yeah, right. all this stuff. Um, um, excuse me, Jack Palance. Okay, let's well, not different the time Dean Cain thing. We can't even. You can't. If I can't link, bring up uh, a B-list celebrity. It's gotta be. It's gotta be Jack Palance with his. <gasps> every time he'd take a breath to introduce something new, man, it was that was awesome. I used to love that show. But I know you got the Dean. You got the Dean Kane version. I get it. I know so. it wasn't good, but it's what, what I have to go with. Okay, back to McDowell. So there's a, a few stories I want to ask you about. Um, but so the locals knew pretty much that they were stealing cadavers for for the college, and there was one disappearance of a, a German immigrant who almost, pretty much almost started a riot at uh, McDowell College when the rumors started that she'd been killed and turned into a medical specimen. Right. And then it turns out that she just mm. turned up in Alton. Yeah, and I was just thinking, wandering the streets in a daze. I was just thinking, yeah. there have been many times when my friends couldn't find me. Yeah, but here's the thing. Here's streets. the thing. I think there's more to that story. Yeah. I, I really do. I think there's a darker side to that story. Okay. Now, keep in mind that the, you know, the, the, polit the, the, the society people of St. Louis weren't fooled. They knew what was going on at the mm -hmm. college, but none of them said anything. It, it wasn't a, you know, there were new 
newspaper editorials about, you know, because it wasn't just at McDowell's College. Every medical school in St. Louis was doing it. Yeah. Um, but these doctors, you know, had family members and they had some money and nobody was saying too much. It was McDowell's place on the south side where all the immigrants lived. And no one was saying anything publicly, but the immigrants all knew. I mean, the people in the neighborhood, the the, the great unwashed, of course, were terrified of this place yeah. because they were sure they were gonna end up on one of these tables. Mm -hmm. So it makes me wonder when they talk about this woman disappearing and then, you know, one story leads to another and a rumor gets started. Oh my God, they, they must have killed her and they've taken her in. Now he'd never been accused of murder ever before. Nothing like that had ever been accused yeah you know they, they it was always stealing dead bodies it wasn't murdering people and, and cutting them open and then they find this woman wandering around Alton in a daze mm -hmm. now doesn't this sound like maybe somebody had chloroformed her or something yeah, and they, maybe they the tried. plan was to take her in and then when all of the you know excitement got started somebody says well we got to get her out of here let's just dump her across the river uh -huh. that's what always makes me wonder it makes me think that maybe somebody maybe one of the students decided to take it one in the H.H. H. Holmes fashion, right. decided to take it one step further and create maybe a create a dead body yeah. like Burke and Hare were doing in Scotland by this time. Right, right. And uh, it, it just always makes me wonder if there's not more to that story. And I, I'm sorry to go off on a tangent no, no, there, but like it. it's funny that you brought that up because that's always the one I've wondered about. Yeah, you know? well, I'm glad I brought it's it up. It's not even the girl who died, whose body they drug into the school for real. Yeah. It's always been, I've always wondered about the woman who was found wandering the streets. That's, you know, it's very plausible. I definitely thought she was just drunk stumbling around the streets, but I, a very interesting <laughs> yeah. story. This other one that was probably my favorite story um, at another and there was another instance where a crowd actually did come to the school and he tell me about this he released a bear it's the cinnamon bear the cinnamon bear that's it was it was a, a breed of bear a brown bear and they called them cinnamon bears and um, they were not as big as what you would imagine okay. you know when you think of a bear you think of you know a grizzly bear yep. or you think of a big old black bear Absolutely. or something these are smaller bears and they were a little more common at the time and dr mcdowell kept one as a pet and he kept it chained up in the basement of the of the building and of it had a den down there yeah exactly of course he did um you know later on that the prisoners would be sleeping in what had been once been the bear's den but um and then what he did you know when a, a crowd would show up and you know think they're gonna set the school on fire or whatever yeah. And so he let that bear go. And the the story always was, I mean, some of the, the other stories, the information I've seen, like the newspaper reports about this, the bear really wasn't all that ferocious, yeah. but it scared people, you yeah. know, when a bear comes running out at you. And, um, but I always like to say, no, you know, no bears were harmed in the making yeah. of this incident. Um, the bear would just go back to sleep. I mean, he was just sort of a, you know, lazy bear that he kept down in the basement who lived for several years after all this stuff took place. And eventually he, he died of natural causes. He was never shot by, you know, an angry German or anything like that. And right. um, it, it is a funny story. And it, it's just kind of one of those things that just adds to the uh, eccentricity of Dr. McDowell, I think. Right. You know? Well, speaking of angry Germans, uh, <laughs> yeah. there was a story yeah. where a young German girl on the south side of the city um, did die, and they were really determined to steal her body, and yeah. they did. They did. Uh, and they knew the mob was coming, so he. Just well, I think someone warned him. I, I don't know who it was, but he got tipped off. He was he was in his apartment, um, his home in the back of the building, and he got a tip that uh, the Germans were on their way to the school. Yeah. 
and uh, they knew about the girl. And so he decided that he was going to hide the body in the attic. Mm -hmm. And so he rushed over into the, the, the proper, the school proper and went upstairs. And that's when he, according to his story. Now, keep in mind, I mean, this guy is, you know, mad as a hatter. I mean, he, you know, on one hand, but on the other hand, it's funny that he told the story because this was, and again, one of those things you got to keep in mind, late 1840s, early 1850s, this was the beginning of the spiritualist movement, mm -hmm. and it was taking the country by storm. Well, McDowell had no use for those kind of things. He was a man of science, he had no use for spiritualism or ghosts, yeah. and would often speak out about the fact that anybody who believed in that kind of stuff was nuts, yeah. which, I mean, it's kind of the pot calling the kettle black, right. but he was a different kind of nuts, I guess. Yes. And so he would often speak out about this. So the fact that he, this incident that I described in the story of seeing his mother's ghost and believing that she had saved his life mm -hmm. um, was a complete three or 180 for this guy. Right. I mean, it was a complete change in his entire life. He had been a, um, you know, a religious man who had, you know, pretty much a Calvinist upbringing, you know, believing in faith that you know, God decided all things. And now suddenly he was believing that he could communicate with the dead, uh, believing in the Fox sisters, going to their seances, going to seances all over the city of St. Louis. It completely changed his entire worldview. That's when he became so fascinated with trying to preserve his, his family's bodies. Mm -hmm. uh, that's when he became so interested in ghosts and hauntings and strange things. You know, this was all of those things that, you know, happened after this incident and really put himself up to mockery mm -hmm. by doing this. I mean, people already thought he was crazy, but for a completely different reason, mostly because of his, you know, racist secessionist views. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's really why he was seen as such a nut. You know, the things that he would do, go out on street corners and scream about his beliefs. But you know what, so were other people doing at the time. Right. Other people were out giving sermons on street corners. So he really wasn't all that different from what other people were doing. But now suddenly, He'd had this, you know, spiritual awakening, and people just assumed that he'd really lost it at this point. Yep. But he truly believed in what had happened. Yep. He truly believed he had had contact with his dead mother and that she had saved his life and changed his life. Um, didn't stop him from being a, a nutty racist and, you know, believing in the, the Confederacy and slavery and all those kinds of things. And when the Civil War broke out, you know, he and his son uh, tapped out and went south. I mean, yeah. that was, you know, the beginning of the end for the medical school. Really. Right. And yeah. Before we get back to the show, I've got to say something about the studio headphones that I'm using. They make all different styles, but I use the Regent model, which comes over the ears, you know, like DJ style. I've got weird shaped inner ears, so none of the earbud style headphones fit me right. But I love these things. They've got a great tone and really balanced sound. They hook up to everything with Bluetooth, but they've also got an auxiliary cord if you don't want to go the wireless route. They've got interchangeable caps in different colors and designs, and since they're made in Sweden, a nice sleek look. Best of all, they've got 24 hours of battery life and 20 days of standby mode. Seriously, check out these studio headphones. They're high quality at a low cost and even lower if you're an American Hauntings podcast listener. Check out their website at studiosweden.com, which is in our show notes. And if you use the promo code American Hauntings, it's just all one word, when you order, you'll get 15% off your purchase. Check them out. You won't be sorry. And now, on with the show. 
to that. Um, I just I love that he was already crazy, but then he adds on this like Norman Bates type. Yeah, uh, a whole you know, different aspect yeah. to craziness. It's really interesting to me too how a lot of times you can t- uh, there's a lot of people you can you can often point to like one specific incident where people kind of started to lose their faith, change their faith, something yeah. happens, and well, that was his turn around. for sure, right? Um, and I love that the way he hid from the Germans was by playing dead. Oh, I know, right? Cl- so... Crawls on, crawls onto a gurney or onto a, an operating table and throws a sheet over his head. Yes. And I thought, well, that is the dumbest thing imaginable. And they didn't catch him it's because a... he believed that his mother's spirit was protecting him. Because, I mean, even he must have thought, this is never going to work, but yep. I got to do something, it's right? It's Mr. Bean type Yeah, it is, it is. And I always like the, you know, the quote was, you know, the guy says, oh, look at this one. He's still got his boots on. Yeah. He must really be fresh, you know, so. It's so ridiculous. Um, okay, so talking about him leaving St. Louis. So 1860s, uh, like I said, war disrupts the college. He, his son, and a bunch of guns yeah. go south to fight. Um, and you talked about it a little bit before, but I wasn't really sure exactly where St. Louis fell um, as far as slavery and during the war, but you've kind of cleared up a little bit of that stuff. Um, the college is seized by Union and then used as a prison, and then, as we know, Civil War prisons just oh, tear yeah, horrendous. Ensues. Yeah, and I think that I described that so much in detail, and it was one of those things where I just kept, I just kept piling it on because it just kept getting worse. I mean, this was, I mean, you, know, you hear stories, you know, the, the famous places have become like, you know, Andersonville, mm-hmm. or, you know, some of these places that have just become these horrific hell holes of, of prisons. But St. Louis often doesn't make the, the famous spots, and it should. Yeah. Because, you know, we talked about Alton in the last season and about how bad the prison was there. This was even worse. Which sounds worse. Um, which it it un- was much worse. I mean, this is where... This is where the guys who ended up at Alton, this is where they started for the most part, was at this prison. And then they shipped them out to Alton, which probably as bad as it was, had to be better than this. Yes. Because this place was just, was a cesspool. It really was. I have to ask also, what are bushwhackers? Oh, they were uh, like ambushers, like uh, Jesse James and and Quantrill and the Raiders and those guys. Uh, They would lie in ambush for federal troops, um, would steal supplies and that kind of thing. So, yeah, that was just the name for them. And I didn't think... I'm sorry about that. No, no, yeah, no, I, no, I love it. Sometimes I throw that stuff in without thinking it. about There's it. There's some, so, some old, yeah. old-timey talk, and I'm yeah. not sure of. Uh, okay, so regarding how bad this prison was, I, I'd like to just quote this again. Um, it's from, from the journal of uh, Captain Griffin Frost. He says, all through the night uh, can be heard coughing, swearing, singing, and praying, sometimes drowned out by almost unearthly noises, issuing from uproarious gangs, laughing, shouting, stamping, and howling, making night hideous with their unnatural clang. It is surely a hell on earth. And that sounds very terrifying. Yeah, it does. It does. I can't imagine being locked up there. And then, you know, and then, like I said, I, when this guy comes to me with this story, years later, tells me this ghost story, and the sounds are identical. It's an yeah. identical description. This guy had no idea. I mean, this was, this was before um, Frost's journals were published. Well, they may have been published very obscurely. But in the late 90s, they were published more widely Mm -hmm. in a couple of prison books that came out. And a lot of people started talking more about uh, the prisons and the conditions there. And and that's when I saw a lot of Frost stuff published. And this guy could have never have run across this. I mean, this is his great-grandfather telling this story, and it was a family story. And he came to me to tell me this story. 
And it was identical, almost identical to what Frost had been talking about when the place was open. And yeah. I thought, man, that's, you know, that's spooky. I mean, he told me that. And um, I mean, and I remembered all this stuff I'd been researching and it, it just gave me goosebumps. Right. I mean, that's how that's how real and how weird it was. Right. And they say they stored more bodies in the attic of the college or the prison. Yeah. And it says, oh, great. It is making the attic even more. Haunted. Yeah, right. Exactly. You know, right. Yeah. Bodies. Yeah. Um, there's a part in here where he talks about how the sick were often cared for by Confederate doctor prisoners. So I'm curious, theoretically, could McDowell have been taken prisoner and forced to work as a surgeon in the school that he actually founded? Well, if he had been taken prisoner, he could have. Um, we don't know a lot about what happened to him during the war. That's mm -hmm. that's kind of a, a hole, and I, I I left that out. Yeah. And um, in because of trying to make the story move along, but. Right. Um, you know, we don't know for sure what happened. There have been some rumors that he had been captured, um, that was in a prison camp for a while. Mm -hmm. um, what we do know is that, at least for part of the time, he was right on the battlefield working as a surgeon. So you can imagine what he must have seen during that time, the, the horrific things that he saw. And I'm gonna say that what he was doing on the battlefield was not the kind of medicine he ever planned to practice. Mm -hmm. Because there was no time for the kind of surgeries that I'm sure he wanted to do. Yeah. It was it was hack stuff off, patch them up and get them moving. Right. And so I'm sure that he became very disenchanted with what he was doing. Mm -hmm. um, I also know that he worked as sort of a supervisor later on, which makes me think that maybe, you know, if he was a supervisor of some of the Confederate hospitals during the war, that maybe he saw enough on the battlefield that he left, yeah. left the battlefield and went into doing something else. I don't know. I don't honestly. I don't want to dig too deep into this guy's head yeah. um, because I think it is probably a really messy place. Right. You so, know. Okay. So then, so after the fighting, um, so he returns to his building and he has a pardon from Andrew Jackson. And I was I Johnson. Wrote, uh, Johnson. Johnson. Yeah. I apologize. So I meant to ask you. Um, I didn't know, were there repercussions for Confederate soldiers? Did he get off just because he was a rich white doctor? Uh, no, not necessarily. Um, actually, Lincoln had a different, completely different plan for the Confederacy. He just wanted, um, he wanted peace with honor when the war ended. You okay. know, he understood the reasons behind it, and he just wanted it to be over and get things patched back together. But, of course, he was assassinated. So you had a lot of other people in Congress that time that wanted um, revenge against the South. Um, that's where the Reconstruction Movement came from, and a lot of it, you know, the, the South was occupied by federal troops for almost 15 or more years after the war ended. A lot of people don't realize, into the 1870s, the South was like occupied Japan after World War II, uh, okay. or Germany. Yeah. It was, um, you know, it was, it was clamped down on, but if you ask for a pardon, you could get it. I mean, if you, you know, you, you just had to submit a letter. Well, McDowell submitted a letter in writing to uh, the president's office to ask for a pardon and for his U.S. citizenship that he had given up mm -hmm. to be returned. And it was. Um, but, and in the letter he, you know, that he wrote, you, it's obvious that he knew he was beaten, but you know, that didn't mean he was going to take it gracefully. Right. I mean, you know, this room, this enshrine that he made oh, at yes. the college. So we're going to talk about that yeah. in just a second. Uh, but one thing I do want to mention, uh, it says after the war, the guards and officials simply walked away and yeah. left all the filthy left building like behind. it was. I said it once, I'll say it again. Typical government. Yeah, right, they're, right, they're right. Yeah, they're done. They just walk away. But you like know. you said, the shrine that he built, um, 
I need, to, I need to read this. It says, when the renovations of the building began, McDowell left one room just as it had been when the prison was in operation. He placed a sign above the doorway that referred to it as hell, and inside he placed a rattlesnake, a crocodile, statues of Satan, and a gallows where President Lincoln was hanged in effigy. So, aside from hanging Lincoln in effigy, I think this room sounds badass. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like a, yeah, it sounds like somebody's man cave. Yeah, you know? it sounds like part of your office, honestly. Yeah, it kind of does you know? without the President Lincoln, yeah, I yes. guess. <laughs> but that shows, yeah, that he was still the same old guy, I think. Maybe changed a little bit, yeah, but still just as but probably not much. Uh, so he ends up dying of pneumonia. Uh, at age Just a couple of years later. Yeah. yeah, and then his grave remained unmarked until uh, 42, and some Washu people erected a stone in 1942, um, which is the touchy topic about erecting monuments for terrible men. I know, I know. Well, and I think that, you know, I mean, yes, he was awful. Don't get me wrong, but I think that you know, medical students. I mean, if it had been the sons of the Confederacy putting up a stone, that yes. would have been one thing. Right. But this was, you know, a society at Washington University that was the medical students and board. And they felt like the advances that he had made in medicine, you know, warranted the fact that his, at least his grave would should be uh -huh. marked. It wasn't like they put up a statue in his honor. or the, All they did was mark his grave. He's not riding a horse yeah, I mean, with it's, a sword. Yeah, and... it's, yeah, no, no, no. It's just, you know, it's just a stone on his grave at Bell Fountain. Well, so, that, I, you know. I will, I, I'm fine with that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so they talk about how many feared the crumbling old structure in the neighborhood way after, after that. It sounds like a terribly scary place. Yeah, like, I think so, too. you want to go in. Well, but you know kids. Oh, I mean, yeah, you know, yeah, kids are going to want to go into abandoned buildings. I mean, that's the beauty of it. And, you know, you're talking about the, that Southside neighborhood was had always been poor and continued to be so. And these kids probably didn't have a whole lot else to do. You know, it made a great playground, yes. you know, which is how these, you know, and, and people that passed it. And again, you know, some of the stories that spread about the school being haunted. Yes, there were these encounters where people said they went inside and saw a ghost and never went back. And then, of course, the story about this, the sounds these kids heard, mm -hmm. uh, which was passed on you know, several generations and how I ended up with it. I'm sure some of the, oh, I saw a movement at the window or I heard a voice or I heard someone weeping. You know, I'm sure that this place was so spooky that people crossed to the other side of the street and those who didn't, you know, would sit in the local bar and tell stories about, oh, yeah, and I saw this yeah. or I heard this. And I'm sure, you know, some maybe some of the stories were inflated. But I think they're, you know, as we've learned from doing this and from all the things we've done over the years, you know, these stories get started for a reason. Mm -hmm. You know, there is a kernel of truth at the root of just about every legend. Right. So I would say that this is a place that definitely had a reason to be haunted uh, for sure. And it probably was, if, if for no, nothing else than a residual activity that, you know, a kind of repetition of history, you know, going on and on in this place as the years have gone by, you know, if, if for no other reason you've got that. Um, so if there were some stories that got inflated over the third beer at the local tavern, um, I think those stories had a reason for getting started in the first place. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you had to ask me, do I believe this place really was haunted? I'd say yes, I do. Um, the the deaths, the sheer number of deaths, not to mention all the suffering and the horrific things that took place there. I mean, has little to do with the medical college, probably nothing to do with the medical college. The only ghost story you have for the medical college is is Dr. McDowell's, you know, mother. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, everything I think that happened there came after. But would we remember this place so well if it wasn't for Dr. McDowell? No. 
it would be just another Civil War prison. Mm -hmm. But the fact that it was Dr. McDowell's college and he was nuts, I think really is what makes this story so complete. And that's the reason we're still talking about it, you know, 150 some years later. Yeah. You know, that's why. It has to do with Dr. McDowell. Um, was he a brilliant doctor, brilliant surgeon? Was he a pioneer of medical science? Sure, you know, sure he was. Um, was he, you know, did he have a lot of other issues going on? Absolutely. Yeah, but, you like know, it. again, he was a product of his times. He really was. Yep. I mean, this was something that, you know, was not all that uncommon. You know, um, there were a lot of people just like him in every city in this country during what was probably the most heated political era of our time, you know, and, and, you know, you could compare it to the, you know, the Vietnam era, mm -hmm. you know, with the protests that were going on in the streets, you know, you could, you can't even compare what's going on today with, you know, the late sixties. And you certainly can't compare it to, you know, the late 1850s. Mm -hmm. This country was being literally ripped apart. And so he was a product of his times. He definitely was. But, you know, the seed of, of madness had already been planted years right. earlier, uh, maybe by his uncle, definitely by his mentor. Mm -hmm. um, so I think this, you know, it's, it's always been one of my favorite St. Louis stories. You know, um, there's ghosts, there's grave robbery, there's everything all mixed together in, in one insane story. And um, I thought, you know, this is a perfect episode of the podcast. So we have some people that reach out and um, they ask us questions via Twitter, email, different places online. Uh, so I kind of wanted to ask you some of these questions and see uh, what the ghost guy has to say. One of the most popular... If I don't know, I'll just make it up. Yeah, so that's, that's exactly okay. what I expect. Uh, one of the most popular questions, uh, what should someone do if they suspect that their house is haunted Move. by an evil presence? Move. 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 Yeah. Burn it down. Or quit quit reading, quit watching Conjuring movies and quit reading books by so-called demonologists. That's where I would start if uh -huh. I thought my house was infested by a demon. If I thought my house was actually haunted by an actual ghost or by you know, haunting activity, um, not demons, um, there's a lot of things that you can do, but every time that anyone has ever contacted me about, you know, you know, I hey, I think my house is haunted. I mean, the first thing you tell people to do is to keep a journal or a list of ongoing activity. Yep. Um, every single thing that happens, write it down, when it happened, what time of day, anything you can think of. Um, the sun was shining, it was not, whatever it is. Try to I find mean, you know, it was, it was yep. raining outside, it was, and, and you, if you keep track of these things, every single one, um, there's a good chance that a pattern will emerge. And those are the kind of things, if we came out and investigated your haunted house, that is the first thing we would tell you to do. So anytime anybody would ever contact me about that, that's the first thing I would say. And then talk to me in a couple of weeks. Get back in touch with me when you've kept this list and then we'll have something that we can work with and something that we can go by. Um, don't move. I mean, that's not, I mean, don't flee your house in the middle of the night unless you're just not going to be able to live with whatever activity is taking place there. Yeah. I mean, yeah, if your dog is possessed and levitating and things, move. But otherwise, kind of if cool. someone, you hear footsteps going up and down the stairs, just keep track of what's going on um, because that's going to be your first clue as to, as to what's happening, when it's happening, how it's happening, and that kind of thing. Um, and then we have a better idea of what to tell you that you should worry about. Mm -hmm. And if you're scared for some reason, if you think that 
Um, this is something that, that, you know, like I said, you've watched too many movies and you think you have an evil presence in your house. Um, tell it to leave. That's another big thing. Um, put your foot down. Put your foot down. Um, you're now the owner of that property. That's It's now yours. Uh, you don't have to be a dick about it. You can just, because <laughs> if you really feel like there's a presence there, then you should try and make contact with it and say, listen, you know, this is, um, you know, this is, this is now my house. You're welcome to stay, but I need you to not do this. Mm -hmm. I need you to not bother me at night, or I need you to not this, this room, you can do whatever you like there, but don't mess with the rest of the house. Believe it or not, it actually, it actually works. So you do For, negotiate. Yeah, you can, you can, because <laughs> if you really think that there is a presence in your house, addressing it is something that really works. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and if it's just residual activity, there's nothing you can do. There is nothing you can do about your house being haunted by some sort of event from the past that just keeps repeating itself like a broken record. There's nothing that can be done. You just have to learn to live with well, it. You, you just have to decide how it. right. You <laughs> just have to decide how important it is to you. Every three hours to deal with it. Right. Exactly. The hallway. Yeah. So let's all hang out and listen to the footsteps go down the stairs right. or whatever. But again, it goes back to that keeping um, a log or a journal of everything that happens. That's my initial, you know, suggestion to anybody. Well, I think that we probably should wrap this thing up. Uh, this is this this may hold the record as our longest episode ever, but you know what? We'll it, it, shit happens. So, anyway, um, thank everybody for uh, thanks to everyone again for listening. Uh, we we really appreciate it. We love all your feedback. We're re really happy to be back uh, after taking a little time off. And um, again, thanks for listening. Share this with your friends. Review us on iTunes. Come see us at Dead of Winter. Come see us at the Haunted America Conference. Uh, let us know what you think of the podcast. And um, again, thank you everyone very much again for listening and um, throwing it to you. Yeah, we will. Thank you very much. And we'll see you again in two weeks. The American Hauntings Podcast is a way to combine historic record, folklore, science and observation, and imagination to uncover more about America's most haunted places, including St. Louis, Missouri. American Hauntings is a bi-weekly podcast. You can hear new episodes every other Tuesday, so please tune in to hear our latest episode and receive a brand new look at history and hauntings. You can learn more about our podcast and find new episodes on iTunes by searching for American Hauntings or by going to AmericanHauntingsPodcast.com, where we also have links to some of Troy's books as well as information about his upcoming ghost tours, events, and haunted happenings. As for your host, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at CodyBeckSTL or at CodyBeck.com. Please say hello and let me know how you like the show. Find Troy on Instagram at Troy Taylorgram, on Facebook at the Troy Taylor Author page, or at AmericanHauntings.net. This episode of the podcast was written by Troy Taylor, and it was produced and edited by me, Cody Beck. Some of the music in this episode was written and recorded by Charlie Brockus at Lighthouse Sounds in Alton, Illinois.